Thanks to the U.S. Soy and the United Soybean Board for the sustainable makeover of our podcast studio and for sparking discussions on greener Hollywood production. Just like notes in a song, sustainable living is just a series of small, eco-friendly choices that contribute to the melody. Check out the Tears for Fears episode of One Song and see behind-the-scenes clips of how they pulled the whole look together. It's all on at Heartbeat Audio on YouTube, and the link is in our show notes. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. I'm director, actor, writer, and sometimes DJ Diallo Riddle. And I'm producer, DJ, and songwriter, Luxury. And this is One Song, the show where we deconstruct and celebrate some of your favorite songs from the past 60 years in music history and tell you why it deserves one more listen. That's right. Yo, Luxury, what's up with you? Man, it's been quite the week. It's been a big week. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. Why was it a big week? As EPMD would say, if you're tired, go and take a nap. Do we have time for a nap? I don't have time for a nap. You know what? That was a diss back when he said it, but now that we're a little older, like it's like, go take a nap. Why, yes, I will, Eric Sermon. It's a kind suggestion now. Like, thank you. I don't mind if I I do. I am tired. Was it the As a matter of fact, I... We're too. BMD was looking out, for but us. I am not too tired to have an hour-long chat with my buddy Diallo about music. I'm kind of pumped. I got to be honest with you. Oh, okay. Well, should we get this thing started? Let's do it. If you didn't know, this August is the 50th anniversary of the birth of hip hop. We'll be covering a lot of hip hop songs, but I'm excited to say that today's song comes at literally the halfway point in hip hop's history. So, if you consider 1973 the beginning, right. We DJ are now Cole firmly Herc. planted in 1997. Okay, it's not granted. It's not 1998. Yeah, but 1997, yeah. about as clear as a halfway mark as we can get. And and it marks a shift in how mainstream hip-hop is going to become. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the irony is that the artist, the main artist on this song, never got a chance to see it. Oh, my God. Such a build-up. The suspense. <laughs> can we... What is the song? We all want to know. Well... Get ready, because today we're talking about the notorious B.I.G., Puff Daddy, and Mace on their hit song, Mo Money, Mo Problems. P.P.A., no info for the D.E.A., federal agents mad because I'm flagrant, tap myself, and the phone in the basement. By the way, I had a quick question for you. It is the 50th anniversary, technically, of of Cool Herc throwing that party at the rec room at 120 Sedgwick. In the Bronx. In the Bronx. Yeah. Do you agree that that should be the Um, beginning of hip-hop? You know, without... Stepping into the minefield of what is hip hop, I think. Step that, into it. No, because that's a whole nother episode. That's a whole nother episode. And, okay. and I really want to spend some time talking about Biggie, money and problems. But I do think yep. that, um, you know, you've got the four avenues of hip hop present in some form at that party, according to the people who were there. Yeah. You know, you've got teenagers break dancing, uh, emceeing. You know, on the turntable. There may have been some some, and graffiti. some graffiti. Yeah, in there exactly. Too. <laughs> like you know, to you know, again, there there are there are endless books written about this, but I think that to have those four avenues come together, yeah, you know, in, in that a public unique setting. way, and to have those kids realize that they had sort of stumbled on something a new a new recipe, yeah, if you will, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I honor it. I mean, like it's hard to put your finger on it, and to also think about how far we've come. Right. Right? Like, right. you know, nowadays you can definitely go to a hip-hop show and there's no graffiti in sight. Right. You know what I mean? There's very little <laughs> graffiti. And the b-boying is yeah, yeah, exactly. gone downhill so, a little. You know, right. things are going to change in 50 years. And I th- actually think that's the most beautiful thing about hip-hop right. is that anytime somebody, you know, tries to over-intellectualize it or, or come along and constrain it yeah. in the way that, like, you know, rock journalism has sort of constrained rock music. Right. I feel like hip hop's like, no, nah, that's not even the 
that's not even the rubric we're using anymore. You well, know what I, I mean? was going to say that seems interesting to just sort of dawn on me is like it, we're talking about a live moment and like that as the crux of the birth of a genre makes so much sense because hip hop happened in a room with people experiencing it, experiencing there was a DJ on the turntables, yeah. there were MCs, there were B-boys. It was all happening in a live setting. And we, we now kind of think of it as a genre that we choose to listen to and maybe we go to a show. But the birth of hip hop is the birth happens in a live setting, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. There weren't any recordings yet. There were no hip hop records out yet. Right. And I think nowadays if there are new genres being invented, I think they're happening. They're not in happening in live settings. Oh, yeah, you don't need a $5,000 yeah. studio or a performance at Carnegie Hall. Uh, it's usually people on their laptops. Piecing together Absolutely. music in their in their bedrooms. Totally. Know? Interesting. How but hip-hop's 50. Hip-hop can, you know, definitely get into a movie for a little bit cheaper yeah. now yeah. <laughs> if it goes to a movie. But if hip-hop's 50, it probably does prefer going to theaters Midlife for stuff. crisis for um, But when it was in its, you know, mid-20s, uh, this song came out. And this song means so much to hip-hop, I feel, um, we didn't know it necessarily at the time, and some of this is looking back, but I just think that this is one of the seminal hip-hop tracks. And you can sort of see where hip-hop goes off in a different direction, not just for Mo Money, More Problems, but Life After Death in general. That album, yeah. such a major you know, moment in hip-hop history that uh, I thought we'd spend some time talking I'm about I'm excited. Today. I can't wait to, like, get, frankly, get educated from, well, from your Well, that's why I'm going to break down the essentials. Yeah. Uh, this song was released... Uh, after Biggie died, and I would point out after Tupac died about nine months before him, uh, in 1997, uh, this was on Biggie's second and final album, Life After Death, as I said. We all know that Biggie's real name was uh, Christopher Wallace. He was fatally shot uh, in Los Angeles after attending an after party, and uh, Life After Death was literally released 16 days after his murder. And by the way, quick question for you. The Biggie Smalls notorious B.I.G. thing. There's a transition that happens, right? Because he starts out as Biggie. He starts off as Biggie And then there's like a lawsuit, right? Well, there was like a rapper named Big E. There was a white rapper. Yeah. (laughs) There's a white guy named Big E. Smalls who like threatened a lawsuit or something. And so then he made the conversion. Is that what happened? I don't know if it was threatening. I mean, like, you know, nowadays you see things on social media that suggest that it goes really deep in terms of like, you know, Biggie Small sticking out not just the name, but like the use of certain samples. I'm not gonna touch that either. I feel okay. like that's a different kind of briar patch. Um, but obviously, at some point, he needed to change his name for legal reasons, and he became the notorious Big. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna call him Big. We're just gonna go by Big today. We might call him everything. We can call him whatever we want. Might Big call Papa? him Biggie. Might call him you know King of New York. Might. Call- you know, we might call him a lot of things. Man has a lot of names. Might call him Frank White. I love the fact that he called himself Frank White because, like, clearly, like, <laughs> rappers have a lot of time to watch movies when they're on <laughs> tour. And I find that, like, they're usually some of the most voracious consumers of movies. So, like, they'll see a movie. He'll be like, yo, Christopher Walken played Frank White in uh, King of New York. Oh, is that where I'm going to drop that name. No yeah. way. I love that. But you know what's crazy is, like, this was also a concept album. You know, it picks up where the last song on his, uh, debut album which i think is you know just an amazing album ready to die amazing album it picks off where that album left off and you know that song that that last song i believe is called suicidal thoughts you know so this was life after death you know uh which made a lot of sense at the time and mo money mo problems was a monster hit officially ushering in what some people call the shiny suit era (laughs) of hip-hop i mean like you know, I remember Fat Joe's first video, You Gotta Flow Joe. He had 80 guys in the Bronx standing on pure rubble. Everybody had on, you know, like the fat jackets and like the, the Timbos. And like, no, nowadays, like when Puffy takes over hip hop, when Puffy and Biggie, I should say, take over hip hop, everybody's wearing these shiny suits, you know, in the videos. You know, even people who weren't about that before, I'll never forget. I remember Mike Geronimo, one of my favorite New York rappers, and if anybody wants to ever check out Mike Geronimo, he's got some great songs, The Natural, Master I See. He's got a song called Time to Build, which is the first appearance. I'm going to talk in <laughs> comic book terms. It's the first appearance of of DMX, Ja Rule, and Jay-Z all on one cut. Oh, wow. That's canon. But they're all featured, and, <laughs> Matt, and Mike Geronimo is the star of the track. And it's just funny because, like, three years later, you know, they're all – mega superstars but i bring up mike geronimo just to say that like he was like gully you know like he had that new york swag going and then literally after mo money more problems mike geronimo's next video he's wearing a shiny suit and everybody's like oh you know the shiny suits the shiny suits (laughs) so i want to dig into the story of the song and the Mm -hmm. the production and how it got made a little bit so as you probably know 
Uh, there's a, a, a squad working for a bad boy called the Hitmen. Those are the production yeah, team, right? The Hitmen. And, um, you know, apparently... Stevie J's in there, Stevie right? Stevie J is in there. Stevie J is the producer of, is the co-producer of this song. Now, Puff gets co-producer credit, but when you say producer, it can mean a lot of things. <laughs> there's a spectrum a of, things. of what producer means. Yeah. Puff Daddy is not the Kanye type of producer. He's not like the premier type of producer. He's right. not in there with the MPC making the beats. But what he is doing, and this is kind of worth talking about mm-hmm. in this topic, because he is a visionary for whatever... What, lots of things that can be said about Diddy or Puff at the time. What he is, is he's he's the guy that's like, has the grand master vision. Like, we're going to do this. We're going to hit this up. And he leans back and he directs people what they're going to do musically in the track. I also got the sense he would be like, you know what? I don't like those bells right there. That's right. Bring that, bring down and that bass really a little crucial. bit. Or that's bring I up think that that's, snare a little bit. Like, that's absolutely you know. right. And that's underrated because I think sometimes people think, well, unless you're touching the faders, mm-hmm. are you really making anything? And the answer is... Yes, that is a very, Rick Rubin is a very famous modern example of someone who's leaning back in the chair, making choices and, and kind of helping with the big picture. You know what? Let's trash all the songs and write completely new ones, you know? It's sort of like what a director does when he's looking over his editor's shoulder. Right. Yeah. Or the cinematographer. Director's not holding the camera usually. Exactly. Almost never. Almost nowadays. never, right. Yeah. But I say all of that. And in this case, from what I understand, the actual choice to flip. The sample, the Diana Ross sample, came from Mace, who was apparently for real. And I, I, I never knew that. I, I found a couple uh, instances of him talking on, on on some footage of him, like where he's still mad <laughs> because <laughs> it was his idea, and yeah. he brought it to. Um, to and Stevie he didn't J. get a producer. He credit. wanted it for himself, and Stevie's like, "That's great, let's do it." And then Puff comes in, and he's like, "Oh, this is for Big." That explains why I think this is going to be controversial. Do it. Go there. I think that. Biggie's verse is obviously a classic Biggie verse, but I think Mace has the best verse. And that's probably because he found the track and he felt the greatest connection yeah. to this song. That that that's really interesting that's that interesting, you bring that right? up. Because I think it's like it's like a, a solid mid-class Biggie verse. I, I can think oh, of a lot of Biggie verses okay. where I'm like, oh, Biggie just proved he's the goat. This is not really one of those verses, and I do feel wow. like the Mace, who's not, who, you know, who's hot, who's not, like, he comes in on the track with yeah. a certain connection to it that, it, you know, it doesn't surprise me. He's the one who found the, who found the sample. Right, and it's interesting you mention that because that does become one of the more iconic lines from the song. We'll get into it in a bit, but that mm-hmm. becomes an interpolation for Drake later. The Mace, the Mace, who's hot, who's not, those, those bars may be more than who's the Biggie bars. Or what and there may be for. some sub... I don't know what we would call it back in the... It wasn't subtweeting back then, but maybe <laughs> there's there's some subbing of uh, who shot you. Yeah, there's yeah, some yeah. shade maybe directed at a certain uh, other famous rapper, Tupac. There's sure. a lot of things that could rhyme with Tupac at the beginning of that Mace verse. Oh, I, I, okay. You're going to have to we'll, talk, we'll, about, we'll that talk about that a little later. That sounds cool. So going back to the story how the song gets made, around 96, Puff brings his stable to Hitman. They go to Trinidad. And they're like, we're just going to get out of town. We're going to get out of the mindset of all this stuff going down. And we're just going to make music. Wow. So they spend six weeks in hotels in Trinidad. They got two <sighs> rooms set up. Sounds like a dream. With engineers. And they just have the hitmen going through. Track, 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 crank, crank, crank. And a lot of the stuff that ends up on um, on Puff's solo album, but also oh, on the Biggie Puff record. Oh, Daddy and the Family. A lot of that stuff Which is an album that I feel like goes very much hand in hand. Even right. with the sort of like sepia tone. Yeah, uh, album art. I can't, it came out a week later, right? <laughs> the 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 Puff album comes out a week after the More Money, More Problems comes out in in '97. If you can believe it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So basically, it was Mace's idea to flip the "I'm Coming Out" sample. He he just came into the studio. He's like, I got a great one. Give it, give it to me. Give me "I'm Coming Out." This is this 1980 huge hit for Diana Ross which is effectively a chic song with Diana Ross singing it because it's Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards and Tony Thompson. It's the band Chic playing a song and Diana Ross is singing on top. Yeah. And that actually ends up being controversial later. Diana Ross doesn't like the song. She has all the production redone. The versions you end up hearing are remixed by other people and she never works with Chic again, which is ironic because it's a huge hit. It's everyone's favorite Diana Ross album. Is, it's a great album. It's a great album. It's, it's got a great album. And I've listened down, to the original Chic version out. of all these songs, yeah. and they sound pretty much the same. Pretty as similar. The, the, what got released. I agree. I, I, there's barely, there's very subtle differences. But yeah. So the Diana Ross sample, I want to play it for you, because one thing that's interesting that most people don't know is, in the first place, you're hearing a pretty wholesale four-bar loop of I'm coming out. Right. In fact, when the song starts, you're like, oh, the Diana, Diana Ross is on the radio. <laughs> like, it literally just is the song yeah. until you get that wooka 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 coming in. 
Which was the beef that a lot of us had with Puffy and Bad Boy Records in general was that, you know, when you have people like DJ Premier who take obscure records, flip them into like pretty much brand new compositions by just the way they chop them up and, oh, yeah. you know, like DJ Premier, Pete Rock, like these guys are like, you know, they're doing what Dilla will do in the 2000s, right? right. But like Puffy and them, they were just like, <laughs> I may mean, even let you know, we take hits from the 80s, don't Literally. it sound so crazy? Literally. He, he you know? told you what they were doing. <laughs> Yeah, so it sounds like it's a single four-bar loop, but what's actually going on is a little more complicated. I'm going to play it for you. There's actually two samples that are being layered here. So here's the first Diana Ross sample. And here's the second sample. And then I'll play them both together so you can hear how they blend. Something that's really cool when you hear those, those samples isolated is you hear all the grit and crackle because these are vinyl records that are being sampled. This is, this is still the era pre-digital. There are CDs and such, but they're sampling these records. They're sampling the vinyl copies of the records, so you get all the grit. All right, now I'll play them together. Oh, and I almost left one thing out. There's actually a third layer that comes in after every, I think, 16 bars. Which is just that first beat, that first downbeat. One, two, three, four. Uh, that's all that was. By the way, I remember that when this uh, Diana Ross sample was used in Mo Money, Mo Problems, it caused a little bit of controversy uh, at the time. You know, there were there were whispers of like, you know, I'm coming out, why... Why Puffy using, you know, why do you sample a gay anthem? You know what I mean? Like, this is in the less, you know, the less woke era of hip-hop where, like, you know, there was, there was pretty rampant. Homophobia? Homophobia. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, I think about some of the songs we used to play then that, like, nowadays, like, you'll be doing an old school set and you'll forget, like, you know, a certain word or a certain something's coming up in the song. You're like, ooh, damn. I don't, yeah, that didn't age well. got away with yeah, that, you know? didn't age well. We got to listen to the sample one more time because there's something about the use of it, the choice, like literally the selection, not just what I played for you, which is the layering, but the selection of a huge 1980 massive disco hit that's important to talk about. I got a question for you, y'all. Does this feel like, this is something Q-Tip would, would crate dig and and put in a Tribe Called Quest song. Does this, does this qualify as a sample, in your opinion, that would be used in a De La Soul? Or a... Well, it's, it's, it's how they use it, right? Like, if you go back and listen to, you know, me, myself, and I, like, they didn't, they didn't drastically change, uh, you know, that sample. Like, there were times when Buddy, um, which is a De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, you know, classic, really doesn't do that much to change the song that they sampled there. You know, like they, they took a snippet that they liked yeah. and they put it out there. I think what happened was the West Coast blew up really big. And Dre, you know, around the time of the... The Chronic is a seminal album. We, we could spend yes. a whole episode talking about that. But on The Chronic, they didn't do sort of like the the DJ Premier... Pete Rock. No, and I saw some interpolations, not samples. They, 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 they were, there was a lot of interpolations, but they were also just taking like, you know, Swing Down, Sweet Chariot, Stop and Let Me Ride. Like they just took the song and rapped over it. Right. And, and not even in the subversive way, I would argue that like someone like Ghostface Killer will rap over a song that he literally didn't change. Like he'll <laughs> literally just put on a song. You'll still hear the vocals singing underneath. It would yeah. be like, yo, I saw a baby doll. You know, like it's just like, man, that's, he didn't change a damn thing. This is somewhere in between. And there were definitely rumblings that what they were doing was like, you know, taking a pop song from a previous era, you know, probably 20 years ago. And then just rapping over it. So, yeah. So, I yes, absolutely, I do consider it a sample. But understand that this this type of sampling, though popular uh, with the public, yeah, did get critiqued by a lot of their fellow artists. I think when when you got producers crate digging, you know, in the sort of classic, like I, I mentioned, Q Tip and yeah. or Dilla or whoever, oh, yeah. like this is there's a art to it, which is both the 
portion of the song, which I think you were referring to, but also like, what is the song? Yeah. And the more obscure, the better is kind of what I was alluding to a little bit with, with the Q-tip mention. Yes. So what's happening here is that that is not important to the hitmen. The hitmen, they're called the hitmen. Let's take a hit and make a hit. It's right there in the title. There's no surprises going on. But you here. know, I will say that like, you know, some of this, when you look back now, you do realize like there anybody could have done this. They did it effectively. Right. You know what I mean? And so sure. to a certain extent, I'm not even adopting, you know, an argument that would have been made against the critics back then. Oh, y'all just hating because right. we're selling out, you know, all these CDs and shows. I'm not making that case about it. I'm not saying any just any old thing that works with the public is automatically good. But um, but the fact is they, they you know, the fact that they took a song, a Diana Ross song that at that point in my life, I'd never heard this song, you know, like I just hadn't. And I was like, oh man, that, you know, that sounds really cool. So to a certain extent, the youth will sort of drive the way, you know what yeah. I mean? Like a song that was 20 years old at the point that I was probably 18, you know, that that's going to be a brand new song to a certain extent if it's right. an album cut. And you probably feel the history. You you can tell that what's being, you can tell what's being sampled song. is, it's a song that is from the past, yes. whether or not you f- were familiar with it personal right right and that gives it something that gives it something that makes it hip-hop probably absolutely i mean they, again place everything in its context this is the late 90s boogie nights is in theaters puffy's sampling disco like disco was back in a big way in the end of the 90s because yeah. you know again it was 20 years old and anybody who was like you know under 30 thought oh wow this is fun we're taking our parents music you and know you're right I mean? you kind of alluded to it in the opening it's like it's a quarter century after the beginning of Exactly. Hip-hop, which begins with disco and funk. Yeah. But we're going back with this period of West Coast interpolations and kind of slowed down George Clinton, whatever, this, that, and the other. We're kind of going back to hip-hop origins. Exactly. With, with tracks like this one. Exactly. And to your point, it wasn't just Diana Ross. Like, they were literally taking so many things from, you know... 15 and 20 years ago. So he didn't just hit up Diana Ross. He took Bowie for a spin. Right. Yo, yo, this makes, you know what I'm saying? You got niggas that don't like me for whatever reason. You got niggas that don't want to see me, bitch. You got niggas that's mad because I'm always with they bitch. It's the same thing. The song starts and you're like, oh, here comes David Bowie's Let's Dance. It's the same thing as with Mo Money, More Problems. The song starts with it it could be the original song it's only slightly modified it's sort of pitched down a little slowed down right. listen not everybody was in love with this kind of sampling <laughs> right. back then and yeah. and some people are still like oh no you know i got i got to yeah. have you know that the fact that like someone like Q-Tip can take a mini ripperton song and take the quietest part of the song right. and then flip it into you know a number of songs a, a number of Q-Tip songs are based off off of mini ripperton's songs like you know, to me, that is the art, but, yeah. you know, but this this was something different. This was, this was Puffy taking pop music back from the West Coast, because by this point, Snoop is off death, uh, yeah. Snoop is off death row, you know, the prize is for the taking. And for, you know, the first couple of years after Biggie's gone, New York definitely reasserted its dominance, yeah. you know, because you had Puffy, you had Busta Rhymes releasing, you know, his solo records. He'd moved on from Leaders of the New School. He's not really claiming native tongues in the same yeah. way. We're in the Wu-Tang era. Stuff. Wu-Tang, I would argue, is not really on the scene right now either. I think Wu-Tang has, like, this amazing period from, like, 93 to 97, 98, where they're driving the culture. But I remember, I think the only album that came out from Wu-Tang in, like, 97, 98 might have been, like, Inspector Deck or something like that. They, they passed like, the torch along to, 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 to Puff, whether sure they, they liked it or not, any torch. whether they meant to or not. I think that what happened was New York discovered how to make hit records in a way that sort of, like, you know, and also the South is coming up now, so you've got Jay-Z, Ja Rule, DMX, like, that's sort of the new face of New York. Right, right at this time. I think the Rizzo was hanging with Quentin Tarantino and doing the Bobby Digital album, you know, but like, you know, this is this is New York's, you know, dominance and then fifty cent comes in. Yeah. But then sometime around the time fifty cent comes in and Eminem is a huge major pop star, then the South comes in. Right. And all this swings on a pivot that we call Life After Death, aka Mo Money Mo Problem single. Just to add one more point, by the way, to the sample transformation, in favor of like the you know the cred reputations of the hitman or or or, or Puff in general, um, you know, it is important to mention that this is a transformed sample not just because of the layering, but because it's layered furthermore with 
additional instrumentation. So what Stevie J does, and I think out of the Hitman, he was known to be one of the most instrumentally mm. gifted. Yeah. He's programming some beats, and I'm going to play for them right now. And when and when you hear it isolated, and when you that's a very strong scratch. That's a very strong scratch. And when you hear it isolated, you can kind of hear the song. That is the momentum of the song. The beat of the song is not the disco beat. It's really coming from the additional material that Stevie J adds. Not the least of which is the bass line, which is completely original. Is that a live bass? That's a that's a synthesizer, and he's oh. playing that. You know, he's playing that part on a synth, layered. By the way, the probably the reason for it is that in the mix, when you've got a sample and you've got all these beats, there's not a lot of room left for where the bass like content would go to not just blow up your speakers. So when you play a synth, it's a lot more controllable. You can kind of control where it sits in the mix, basically. So I'll put that together with the sample, and you can hear how the blend is actually very artful. Can I just say, as a DJ, this was a hard record to mix in. It was like, because it comes in like, like it, you kind of want, <laughs> like, no at least mixing like. Mixing room. Yeah, like, or top. I feel like some some producers will give you like a little snare hit, like a cat. Here it comes. You know, like something like that. But like, I remember this, this was a hard one. Just immediate. This it's now. Hard. It's starting now. I remember that, man. You know, like, and also back in the vinyl days, like, you'd pull the record back, and when you scratch it in like it would actually jump one <laughs> beat ahead and so coming crazy and everybody would look at you not the- dj friendly but not made by dj djs no no These not made by hit record producers for you the know, radio things change when we moved to laptops and, yeah. and cds on because then there was no skipping but in the skipping days this one was a, this one was a little hard but you're making such an interesting point because like we were just talking about the birth of hip-hop being in a room i think we're at a moment in hip-hop where hip-hop is for the radio like literally let's make a hit for the radio is the intention behind this track and to their they didn't really consider djs needing a little time to get the record set up but this this song is a pivot because to me you know like i i grew up in the south i grew up in atlanta but to me, most of the early 90s hip-hop that came out of New York was grimy and gritty. You know, it was Daz Effects. It was Mob Deep. Nas's first album, Milmatic, is like an ode to like a, to a, to a pre-Giuliani New York. You know what I mean? Like, and that was what everybody thought of when they thought of New York. It was like, it was like rhymes and skills. And, and it wasn't about, you know, all these material things. It was about, like, really... People don't even talk about, like, Redman and K-Solo and and uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about EPMD and Rakim is sort of the birth of that and uh, KRS One is sort of the birth of that. And then something happened. I'm still convinced it's because everybody saw the West Coast just the West Coast was selling plat. They were going platinum. You know what I mean? They wanted we're not some even of talking that. about MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice. Like we're not talking about like the highest selling rappers. We're talking about like the G Funk sound. Everything that Dre put out after the Chronic, you know, started with nothing but a G thing, but like everything they did was just huge. And then Doggy Style got the the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, and it was like people were really paying attention to hip hop in a different way. It was like the beginning of hip hop's ascension to slowly replacing rock as like the music of the youth culture. And I truly think that like the East Coast saw this, you know, people like Tribe Called Quest. <laughs> mob deep to a certain extent like you know which are not really that far apart when you think about like both of them are from queens you know what i mean like they they were watching this they're like well you know we're we're gonna be the protectors of hip-hop as art and i think what puffy did by bringing somebody as talented as biggie as a lyricist he brought somebody who's unassailable you can't ever claim biggie didn't have lyrics he didn't have flow but he put it with production yeah. that was as shiny and as pop-driven uh, as what Dre was doing on the West Coast. Right. Well, and so. that potent mix sort of came together. You start seeing the beginnings of it on Ready to Die. But Ready to Die is still a very sort of like New York gritty album. You know what I mean? But like <laughs> by the time we get to Life After Death, 
it's a different biggie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's doing, you know, songs with Jay Z. He's doing songs with uh, I think he's got a song with R. Kelly on there. Um, you know, he's 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 bridging that gap between R and B listeners and hip hop. Right. And again, Mo Money, Mo Problems in its shiny in its shiny suit glory uh, is a song that you don't have to be like wearing a scully. And, you know, those kind of gloves that everybody wore and like a puffy jacket. Like, no, you can be an R&B listener well, I was just gonna and ask still you that appreciate part what of, Biggie's bringing. Part of what we, do, what we don't like to do, but collectively as people and also on the show, is like get a little too, like, going down the rabbit hole of like pinning down definitions. Because yeah. that, that's just a waste of everyone's energy. However, it does, I'm curious to know your opinion. Like, is this track a hip-hop track, a pop track, an R&B track? Does it matter, or what would the, what would if it's a pie? What's the allocation? Because I think that would be an easier question to answer with uh, with a Nas track with New York State. I mean, like that's a hip hop track, and what I, is this? Look, I think almost everything on Life After Death is absolutely hip hop. All I'm saying okay. is that you take hip hop's, you know, arguably hip hop. It's hip hop, and it going on the radio makes it a pop, makes it a pop's song only after the fact is that what something no, like I, that I guess or? what i'm saying you take okay. hip-hop's greatest lyricist and you put him over not the dj premiere you know one of my favorite right. songs on life after death is i got a story to tell i think it's a fantastic track but that track is not meant to push the album to sell records or to you know build biggie's fan base yeah. that's 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 a song for the streets right that's i got they're a story mixing to it tell. up on the record more money more yeah, problems yeah. you know um uh, Sky's the Limit, I think, is on this album. These are songs that are very smooth, right. very Big Papa Biggie. Yeah. You know, I said we were going to give him a million names in this episode. <laughs> By the time Big Papa Biggie comes out... You made a promise and you're out, delivering, yeah. That, that dude, he can rap over any smooth song, you know, and make it hot. By the way, when Hypnotize comes out, uh, there are a lot of people who are like, oh, Biggie just released a West Coast record. Right, it sounds reasons, like a West Coast record, yeah. Herb Rise Alpert. by Herb Alpert felt like a really it's West Coast jazz. thing to it do. Does sound like a... But you know, again, Biggie showed the industry that you didn't have to sacrifice your lyricism to sell a lot of records. All you had to do was change the production. And I think that you have to give him credit um, because what he sort of opened the door for was, you know, label mates 112 on the R&B front, uh, Mary J. Blige, you know, she, she comes in, the real love remix has biggie on it look up in the sky it's a bird it's a plane you know like biggie was always saying like hey we can we can we can sell records too we just got to give people something different and you see it in 112 you see it in mace you see it in the locks you know total but you know like it's because of bad boy success with this format that we got three of i think just seminal new york labels you got Rough Riders, which gave us DMX yeah, and Swiss Beats. You had Murder Inc., which gave us Ja Rule and Ashanti, and um, and you had Rockefeller, which gave us Jay Z and eventually Kanye. Cameron and Dipset and Kanye West. And you know these labels, these New York-based labels. You know they were watching what Puffy was doing at Bad Boy. Say yeah. it was the Violator label. You know, also great label at this time. And everybody was doing that while Raucous was over here sort of keeping it yeah. New York true, doing its stuff with Most Def and Blackstar, you know, and, and, and a rapper named Socrates, which, which I remember because everybody on the scene was like, Socrates is the best freestyling rapper in New York. And, you know, sometimes those rappers don't, the, the, the best freestyle rapper isn't necessarily the best when it comes to writing. And we still have the left field stuff, as it were. We still have the, the like, native tongue stuff is still happening. They still exist, but they are they kind of exist, on the down? But, but, you know, it's always like, and, and let me be very clear, I think Wu-Tang makes great records from 93 till today. And I think that Q-Tip and De La Soul, you know, rest in peace, True Goy, like, I think that all these people have made great records, but there's a point at which you're driving the culture, yeah. and there's a point at which... There are other people driving. I mean, the culture. Marauders was sort of the end of their run, right? Um, yeah, I think so because I think by the time Beats, Rhymes, and Life comes out, I think that's the next record. Uh, you know, I'm already listening to Outkast at that point, and I'm I'm starting to notice that the South, the South got something to say. You know, as that's as he what famously he said, put he said it. it. But but to come back to Puffy, 
I think that Life After Death plants a certain flag in the ground and says, Hey, New York's this still is around. New York. And that's what's so ironic We're is back, that at, baby. when, I mean, like, not that Biggie wasn't already running New York, but this album, which was a double album, you know, uh, would have absolutely. He 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 deserved a, a rain on the top while this album was out, and unfortunately, he he just didn't get it. I I know you. I usually repel at these kind of comparisons, but I consider him a little bit the Kurt Cobain. Oh, we're going there! Hip-hop. Yay! And we can say that for later. Let's take a break. Yeah, I didn't and hear when anything. we come back, I'll tell you why I think that the Notorious B.I.G. is sort of like Kurt Cobain. In a different genre. There is so much we need to get into. Is there more show? Is there more show coming up? I think there's more show. We're going to come back after a quick break. Thanks to the U.S. Soy and the United Soybean Board for the sustainable makeover of our podcast studio and for sparking discussions on greener Hollywood production. Just like notes in a song, sustainable living is just a series of small, eco-friendly choices that contribute to the melody. Check out the Tears for Fears episode of One Song and see behind-the-scenes clips of how they pulled the whole look together. It's all on At Heartbeat Audio on YouTube, and the link is in our show notes. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. At Delta, we know Mike and HC prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back. So we've been talking about the Biggie Mace Puff Daddy classic, Mo Money, Mo Problems. But to understand the two sides of Biggie, we, we got to go back further yeah. than 1997. Take me back. Now, I, I consider myself something of a voracious consumer of mixtapes. And I mean, like, that was, that was how you got, you know, so much hip hop back right. then. Like, sometimes you'd be like, man, I don't even listen to the album, but Jay-Z's mixtape with, you know... <laughs> DJ, you know, is this Envy. the DJ drama era? Is that what this is? I actually want to give a shout out to to our our, our producer Eric One because there are Eric two one. Eric's in here and they can what they can fight Eric to the e? death over who gets Eric One and Eric Two. Big E, <laughs> but Big E. Eric reminded me, uh, DJ Clue, world famous DJ Clue. DJ Clue had the greatest mixtapes at the time because there were versions of songs that we will probably never hear again because they were just. They weren't the album version. They weren't the radio version. We're gonna need they to were do... just a guy rapping over the instrument. We got it. There's going to be a whole episode. We're going to have to do a mixtape episode because that's let, such let, a seminal part them. of the let's culture. Let's find them. Yeah. Every now and then I go on YouTube and someone has been so kind to upload these 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 mixes. But I remember hearing Biggie very early on. He he was one of um he was in the sources unsigned hype one month and that was a big deal. You know, like that was when the source was really driving things too. Right. Like I'll never forget when the source gave. Illmatic, Nas's debut album, the five mics. the proverbial five mics. Like yeah. everybody's like, "Yo, Nas got five mics." Yeah, it's a big deal. This ain't there no notes. Like this is the perfect album. And by the way, if you go back and listen to Illmatic now, can I just say, represent? I might have cut that song. It's got some. I, I, I think that song. I, I still believe we got to do classic album, worst song. That should be a segment. <laughs> Absolutely. Every album, oh, almost every one. album yeah, has yeah. a song you would cut. I got ideas. But I remember Biggie Smalls, the first time I heard him on a mixtape, and it was the song Party and Bullshit. Party and Bullshit. If my kicks, honeys want to check, but all we want to know is where the party at. And can I bring my jack? If not, I hope I don't get shot. Better throw my vest on my chest, because niggas is a mess. It don't take nothing but front for me to start something. Bucking and bucking at niggas like I was duck hunting. And party and bullshit. I, I, you know, I remember everybody's like, "Yo, this dude is sick." 
and he's really ill and like, you know, where the party at? And can I bring my gad? I was like, oh, don't let him in our party. We don't want any gats at our party. But like that, I mean, you can hear Biggie was rapping differently than he's in a high register. He's like, you know, he's like that grimy street kid yeah. out, of, out of Brooklyn. It just sounds you know what different. I mean? It just sounds so different. It just sounds different. really yeah. different than what he's going to end up sounding like. And there was, there was, there was something about the way Biggie did, used his voice and the way he was weaving a story. If you go back and listen to that one and some of his earlier songs. I mean, this is the first of our two Biggies. This is how he was introduced to us who were listening to hip-hop at the time. And it's ironic because if you go and listen to his first album, Ready to Die, he kind of acknowledges that he had two styles coming into that first album you know because on the track give me the loot it's like it's like a scene where like an actor acts opposite himself yeah. like it, you hear biggie use both, both of his voices, voices yeah, yeah. and it's like he's having a conversation with himself too, yeah. yeah on give me the loot right. one of the greatest one of my favorite biggie songs of all time this is give me the loot off of the debut album ready to die stick and move stick and Nigga, move you ain't got to explain shit I've been robbing motherfuckers since the slave ships with the same clip and the same four five two point blank a motherfucker sure to die that's my word nigga even try to poke on have his mother sing it it's so hard yes mom that's such a fucked Funny up too, yeah. interpolation <laughs> of boys uh, to men it's so hard to say goodbye uh, but you know the first time I heard that song I remember some people thought it was two rappers on the song it's just so different. And somebody was like, no, that's Biggie rapping both both verses. And it's, that's amazing. It's, it, was, it was subtle enough that, like, you know, some people actually thought it was two different rappers on the song. But there's also just, again, he's like, he's using, if you if you really study the lyrics, he's using different flows for the different voices. Like, they don't, they don't, wow. their staccatos are a little bit different. And uh, it's, it's listen, it's violent. I got kids now. Some of these lyrics, I'm like, ah, dang. Bring, but, like, you know, as a kid back then, I was just like, I was loving it. I was loving it completely. You know, there's there's a line on there that got edited on all the CDs that came out of for Ready to Die. He's got a line on there. It says, "Don't give a don't give a fuck if you're pregnant. Give me the baby rings and the number one mom pendant." And I'll never forget on every <laughs> CD it says, "Don't give a fuck if you're." I wouldn't give a fuck if you're in there. Give me the baby rings and the number one mom pendant. And I was like, there's what? so much cursing That's on this the word album. That's blue. the word that Diddy That's was like, you gone too far, cut. Biggie. This is, this uh. is not freaking acceptable. But it's almost like the George Clooney approach to making a movie, like, or having a a movie career through most of the 2000s. He would do a big, Clooney would right. do a big budget movie. So and then he would do a small, yeah, he would go off and do a small movie. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like, the, the both Biggie albums, to a certain extent, have songs for the streets and then a song made for radio. And not, not that not that Diddy, you know, invented this as a as a strategy to get artists play, but it definitely felt like he perfected it for the '90s, especially yeah, on I the agree. East Coast. Right. You know, because to this day, when I think about that album, I think about oh, that that's my favorite song. Like the warning is a great song, but it comes on right after a song that you feel like was maybe made at least for the mix shows. Mix shows being uh, black radio shows at night. Yeah. So they would play songs that you wouldn't hear during the daytime, but they were still acceptable enough that you could play them at some time. And they're covering the all the different markets, all the different potential audiences. A hundred percent. Basically, Biggie, he cracked that code on how to go both mainstream without losing his street appeal. And that was sort of the, the, totally. the potent nature of the second Biggie. The biggie who, you know, some say the X makes the sex spectacular. Let me lick you on your neck and the back and the... Like, that's a oh, different... I love your biggie. Like, he's... <laughs> thank I can't you. listen all day. But that is, that is a guy who's rapping for, you know, potentially R&B fans. Yeah. Just still trying to keep it a little grimy, but, you know, not the same as the biggie we heard on that other song. Right. And it's that second biggie we get a lot more of on Life After Death. Let me ask you, do you have... Yeah. His vocals on Mo Money Mo Problems. I actually, I got them teed up right here. I got the acapella. Where are you getting this stuff? Are we gonna get? Are, are people gonna come find us in the studio and kill us? Because like, you know, it's one thing if it's like here's some ELO sample. Hey man, that's <laughs> but one like, of my special but skills. But like, I don't want, I don't want Diddy coming down. Like, yo, is this serious? Nope. I got friends in high places. That's all I can say. Shall we listen well, we to some friends here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm your friend here. What are protection. you saying? No, I'm you have saying. friendship. Come on. I just don't want to be like, yo, who leaked that stuff to luxury? <laughs> We're not cool with that. 
Well, we're going to listen anyway because it's pretty it's pretty hair-raising on no, the back of your it. neck. Let's listen. It. This is Isolated Biggie Smalls. My team supreme, stay clean. Triple beam, lyrical dream. I be that. Catch your seat at all events bent. Gats in holsters, girls on shoulders. Playboy, I told you. Me and Mike's to me. Bruise too much. I lose too much. Okay, I got to say a couple of things about this. One is that Biggie famously didn't take paper into the studio. Yeah, he was completely off book or memorized. He however and you want to put it. Two, two of the first. And uh, yeah, Jay Z same way. So that that part of it is always amazing to me. How dialed in you have to be to. He's writing them in his head. And and to, well, not writing them in his head, but he, but but it's in his head. It's in his head. But but here's here's what here's what I've always because I've always struggled with the idea that Biggie died when he was 24 years old. That's a 24-year-old. And I hear it for the first time in my entire life. I can hear a 24-year-old rapping because you have the vocals with no treatment on it. Yeah. I feel like You're when they put the it in the, the room, track, right? it's a deeper, like, that sounds like a 24-year-old. When I hear the finished track, I hear a person who I will never be older than. You know, like, oh, wow. he always sounds like a deeper registered boy. That is crazy. And the phone in the basement. Stay clean, triple beam, miracle dream. I'll be that. Catch a seat at all events, bent. Gats in holsters, girls on shoulders. Play boy, I told you. Me and Mike's to me. Bruise too much, I lose too much. One of the things I love about hearing and playing and sharing these isolated vocals is that you really hear the human being. You yes. even hear the like the uhs and the like the headphone bleed. You're picturing Biggie as a human being. Yes. And that's, he's that's human who's being. in the room with you. He's, he's not a, a voice on high. Right. With all the reverb, uh, he's, and, that's right. He's and not kind of up. enveloped and protected by the musical bed and the beat and the whole and everything else going on. He is just a human, a it's vulnerable just a, just person. Twenty-four-year-old kid, and he's a twenty-four-year-old with kid. amazing talent. Yeah. And it, in in some ways, it, it like touches. It, it it's sort of, it's so tragic that he'd be cut down so early. You know what I mean? It really like, is. And something else that really comes clear when you listen to the isolated vocals. I mean, you hear everything we've been talking about. You hear his flow, the unusual rhyme schemes where he's placing rhymes not just at the end of a line and then rhyming it the next time there's rhymes within the within the line there'll be a word at the end of a line that gets rhymed twice and then there's Mm -hmm. a new rhyme all that stuff is mixed up in addition to his choice of where to place the syllables in time so what's really interesting is when you when you learn that he had a childhood friend there's a a guy in the neighborhood who was a jazz cat like who played with miles davis like Mm -hmm. a real guy named donald harrison that took him under his wing, that saw something innately in Chris, young Chris, Christopher Wallace, and took him in. And young Chris would go to his house, and they would play jazz records. He'd play Max Roach records and point out in like the drum solos, like what he was doing and what was interesting about it. So thinking about the syncopation, the idea that the choices a drummer makes are about how to surprise the ear, how to do something syncopated, which means against the beat that would be unexpected and interesting. That, I think, really sunk in with Biggie when you think about what he's doing with his choice of Absolutely. where to put the syllables yeah. in the air, like when to say something and when to give it a little bit of space is so unusual. You and I have never talked about this ever. Okay. Oh, so wow. I'm just amazed I'm and happy that you've brought this up. What you're saying is 100% right. And what I've heard somebody else far smarter than myself say online was um, the difference between Tupac and Biggie's flows was that Biggie was almost like a, using his voice as a jazz instrument and Absolutely. Tupac was using his voice as a, as a preacher. So that is great. he's like, oh you know, like in the means of it. Like it's like, it's like, love he that. almost sounds like Martin Luther King. Yeah, Tupac yeah, when yeah, he, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but and it's melodic like a preacher too, right? Yes. I love that. But Biggie, like you said, he's hitting. Sometimes he's right on the beat, but he's got so much rhythm he can go off the beat and then bring it back to the beat. I, I and it I sounds so casual that, um, and, and like easy. He's like he's 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 not breaking a sweat while he's doing no, it. No, no, it comes very natural yeah. to him. If you uh, if you think about his verse on "One More Chance," uh, you know, just the way. He could, when the, you know, like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rap it right now, but go back and listen to I it. Love your the Biggie number raps. of times that he sort of. Uh, takes a syllable and stretches it past the fourth beat into the first of the next beat. Exactly. And keeps it going. Like, 
all that stuff is very jazz-like. It's very drummery, and we're yeah. both drummers, so we talk about it. Like, <laughs> yeah. I remember one of my first, when you're playing the drums and you learn your fills, the first one you learn is doing, and you come right back on the one, right? Yeah. And then a little later on, you learn, you're kind of like not hitting the crash on the one. You're finding new, unexpected find places, new places. Yeah. to put the rhythm, to put so your So shout out your to beats. the public schools where they still have band. <laughs> Thank God for that. So, you know, this episode is sort of like a love letter, you know, to the Notorious B.I.G. And I just think it's so wild. I always try to avoid, you know, drawing direct comparisons between genres, like saying, oh, uh, Tribe Called Quest is the Rolling Stones of hip hop. Like, I, I really try to. We're going to do it stuff. on the show a lot, whether you like it or no, not. No, no, no. I, I almost. Good refuse. content. It's I good content. Think it cheapens. No everyone but i right, will we'll vote say, on it later i will say there are some there are some there's some connecting tissue between i think biggie and kurt cobain in the sense that you know there are two major release albums under both of their belts for for nirvana nevermind and um in utero i know that they did bleach look biggie did a whole album worth of of you know stuff before he came out with ready to die but i'm saying there are two sort of major major albums that both guys brought out and then they're gone you know then they're yeah, just gone. they're 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 gosh this sounds like i'm trying to make a joke their reign on the top is very brief yeah you know they're what i mean all, they're not all around very long they're not around but like their their lasting it. impression on right. the genre right. and when you see kids who are 11 and 12 now walking around right. with notorious big on their shirt it just really lets you know just how much impact you can have in just a really brief period. I was of just time. having this conversation. Like, if you go around the world, you'll see just like graffiti and spray paint and in t shirts. Like, who are the iconic artists that have traveled? You'll yeah. see, I think you might see some John Lennon. You'll probably <laughs> see some Bob Marley and you'll probably see some B.I.G. and you might see some Kurt Cobain. I think there's this small group of artists who went too young that have global impact decades after that. And their, you know, I think you've kind of proved, you kind of proved my point in the sense that like John Lennon. Tupac. These are guys who have a lot of albums. To me, what makes what connects Kurt with with Chris is that they kind of both broke out in '91. Yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, you're right. And by you know by '97, they're both gone. And and you can't imagine the '90s without these these icons. You know, it's just their impact was huge. Yes, perfectly put. Well, that's our show. Thank you for sharing the tale of two biggies with me. <laughs> Anything for you, my friend. Uh, help me in this thing. Let's do it together, shall we? Yes. Who are you again? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I am producer, DJ, and songwriter Luxury. And I'm director, actor, writer, and sometimes DJ Diallo Riddle. And this is One, One song. song. Until next time. Bye-bye. One Song is a Sirius XM and Kevin Hart's LOL Radio production. It's hosted by me, Luxury, and my friend Diallo Riddle. This episode was produced by Matthew Nelson and Jordan Colling with engineering from Marcus Hom. Additional production support from Leslie Guam, Charles Childers, and Alicia Shimada. The show is executive produced by Kevin Hart, Ty Randolph, Mike Stein, Brian Smiley, Eric Eddings, and Eric Weil. Hey, this is Justin Richmond, host of the Broken Record Podcast. Join me along with co-host Leah Rose as we sit down with the artists you love to get unparalleled creative insight. You'll hear revealing interviews with some of the most legendary figures in music like Paul Simon, Usher, Pete Townsend, Damon Albarn of the Gorillaz, and Missy Elliott. And you'll hear from up-and-comers like jazz artist Leve, who told me about her fast rise to fame during the pandemic. Listen to Broken Record on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music field trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com.